Welcome to the Dakota Town Hall Podcast, a political podcast platform based in Western South Dakota. Over the coming episodes, you'll hear from candidates and the issues that affect you in the upcoming 2020 election. Welcome back, everybody. It is the Dakota Town Hall Podcast from Home Slice Media Group, and it's also brought to you by Elevate Rapid City. And uh, we've got our first big national get here today from we started this show up. You really need to redefine big national <laughs> get. <laughs> I mean... No. I didn't know Ben Carson was here too. Is he coming in? He's after By, you. Mike right Pence. After yeah. You. Okay. Uh, good. Carson, man, I don't. Uh, know. Carson might be a bad interview, actually. Yeah, he's too cerebral. Pretty, um, he's not effusive enough. It's like reading. Uh, it's re- like IKEA furniture instructions. Yeah. A little. Yeah. Um, in, correct ones. Um, Listen, if you need a brain uh, operation, he's your there guy. There you go. Yeah. Uh, as you can hear, Mr. Dusty Johnson, um, we are going to get all of the candidates uh, at West River, and then we're also talking about uh, some of our um, local or U.S. state and national issues and races, um, and we'll just kind of get into it here. Thanks for coming on today. Uh, it's October 13th on the day we're recording this, um, and so, boy, it's the home stretch. It is. It's crazy. Thank God. Are, are <laughs> I mean, you... Um, I strike you as somebody who would rather govern than campaign. Uh, no, probably not. I mean, I do love people. Like, if campaigning is getting out and actually talking to real human beings about the stuff that matters to them, I love campaigning. Sure. I mean, I love it. I mean, I don't like the national, grainy, dark, negative sure. ads where you call your opponent an SLB. I mean, listen, I think we need spirited debate, and I think we got to be willing to take the bark off somebody if they're wrong. Sure. But I just think there's a way to do that that honors our country rather than demeans it. So that part of campaigning, I don't love. I'm trying to get – I have twin 18-year-old boys, okay, mm. and one of them's um, super into all this and debate, and he's in that mode when he's a kid where he thinks being right is making the other person feel bad. Yeah, right. You know? I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. You you got to make – you got to not – you got to make the point without insulting them. Yeah. And that whole concept as to an 18-year-old just kind of blew his mind a little bit, and I'm like, well – how do we expect an 18-year-old to understand it? We can't get a 47-year-old to understand it online. You know? Well, I mean, the real question is, do you want to solve the problem or do you want to win the fight? There you go. Because yeah. if you want to win the fight, it's That's really easy thing. to do it. Just keep amping up your volume and keep speaking with more certainty and more confidence. At some point, you will wear out all the reasonable people. But if you actually want to solve the problem, you got to go the other way with it. Boy, that's a good way to put it. That's a great way to put it, actually. Well, have you been on Facebook? Well, I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you could just tell the point in the conversation when all the real people go to work or to go take care of their kids or to call their mom, and they're like, this is a dumpster fire. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, this is neither here nor there on a campaign issue by any means, but do, where do, do you think that gets regulated eventually? Well, not in the way that we think of regulation, right? I mean, it's going to be something light touch. I mean, clearly the sort of the antiquated old system we have where either you are a platform or you're a publisher, that doesn't work that for doesn't Facebook work. and That's Twitter. I mean, yeah. That I mean, was eradicated in 2000, largely. But people still have this mindset that either you are a platform or a publisher, and I just think we probably need to have a serious conversation as a nation. And and it is, it's honestly, it's hard to do it during campaign season. It is. Because every time you bring, yeah, right. And and anytime you talk about particular odious speech, somebody's behind it during a campaign season. So now you either want to regulate Biden or you want to regulate Trump. We do need to figure out the rules of the road on this stuff. Well, and regulation in the form of sourcing and, and like, and separating, and I'm, you know, I don't have any solutions to this by any means, but like, all of our parents grew up without having to question what Cronkite was saying or Murrow was saying or Brokaw was saying, you know, even when it, even when it was politically against them. But now 
I mean, I mean, you just can't. You can't separate opinion from news with a with an even cleaver. Well, it's harder, and and frankly, people are way more cynical. And we can, you know, I think that's too bad. But the reality is. The politicians and some media outlets have really sowed the seeds of that cynicism. I mean, sure. listen, you know, we got into Vietnam because LBJ lied to us about the Gulf of Tonkin, yeah. right? I mean, it's not like the politicians. It's not of. Yeah, exactly. No, this isn't new. No, and that doesn't mean all politicians are lying. It does mean that a lot of the skepticism of the messages people are being told is not unwarranted. Yeah, I agree with that. I always tend to, like, it's, you know, my. Um, you know, our Luth- all of our Lutheran upbringing, we still have mm-hmm. the best um, hope for everybody, right? Yeah. And, and so it'd be like, my deal is this is similar. This is the speech I give to a bunch of people every year. It's we're teenagers and we just got our driver's license in the social media world. So you like remember in South Dakota when you're 14 and you get your driver's license, you run stop signs and you do cookies and you... You know, there might be some drinking and driving going on. Like, none of this is what funny. What kind of a crazy man are you, right? right? Not... <laughs> we, we don't respect it. We don't wear our seatbelts. And, mm-hmm. and, like, and then you get you go in the ditch or you get that ticket or a friend has an accident mm-hmm. or something even worse happens. And then you get kind of scared straight into, oh, I need to take this seriously. You're saying right now we in the era in the in the era of social media we're the teenagers. We have our learners permit. On our family of, can't have nice things yet. Damn it! Our insurance is too high. <laughs> all right, because we're all too stupid on social media. We don't respect it enough. But I mean, that's we're getting off a rabbit hole here. I don't know if we fix that on this one. So let's get to. Um, so our staff come up with questions mm-hmm. um, that everybody gets the same kind of topics, and then we'll just mm-hmm. kind of go through the list, and you can go a little or a lot, and whatever you're feeling, mm-hmm. we'll do. Uh, okay, number one, what aspects of ACA or Obamacare do you think are great for the state of South Dakota in general? And then what parts would you say the opposite of or even go as far as repealing of? Yeah, I mean, I would say that there seems to be a pretty broad consensus, frankly, on both sides of the aisle that uh, having, you know, an acknowledgement of pre-existing conditions deserves some coverage. Uh, that's, I mean, I just don't think that's going away. No, I think it's similar to a campaign uh, year issue of like source information. I think that's a hard one to do in an election year. I don't. I just don't think it has anything to do with an election year. I just think people have decided that pre-existing condition coverage is critically important, and I don't think it's going away. I think this could be ten years away from an election, and I just still think there's pretty broad consensus about that. And then, frankly, I think. I mean, I'm a little uncomfortable with the idea of 26 year olds. I mean, I get it. You want to get people through college or through right. tech school. You want to get them through, or if they're just going to the workforce, you want to give them a few years to find their sea legs. I get it. You know, is 26 the year I would have picked? No. But it's the year that was picked. It's the year that we've normalized. People are comfortable with it. That's not going away. You know, it's nice to hear, a, and, and you know, it's nice to hear, a, again, I think my job in these interviews is to be largely in the middle as I can. But it is nice to hear a Republican have a mm-hmm. non-vitriolic answer to that. I appreciate that. Well, and I would just tell you, I when I go to, you know, the meetings of 200 members of the Republican caucus in Congress— I mean, there's no groundswell of support saying get rid of pre-existing sure. conditions coverage or kick the 24-year-olds off. I mean, I think this is pretty much established. Now, I do think the problem with the ACA was we had a uh, we had an affordability problem and we applied a coverage solution, and it didn't really help the affordability problem. 
Uh, I mean, it's not like, and you know, particularly with prescription drugs, we have just seen, I mean, we, we are not doing prescription drugs right. I mean, we are paying drastically more than the rest of the world. And I don't mind, I don't think profit's a dirty word, word and I know that these companies have to make a ton of money if we want them to invest in R&D. And uh, frankly, we're not going to save more lives and we're not going to cure cancer. We don't have research and development. Yeah. I mean, these drugs do not, I mean, it takes, you know, it takes dozens of millions of dollars to get these things to market. For the first pill. For the first pill, and only one out of every 10 ever end up being commercially you know, viable. Sure. And so it takes a ton of money, and I'm not opposed to any of that. My problem is why does a disproportionate amount, and in fact, under some analyses, 100% of the profit and the R&D come from this country? Everybody else is free riding off us. And I think it's, it's wantonly unfair, and it's not just something I complain about. I mean, I like to talk about solutions rather than problems. Sure. But H.R. 19, that's a bill that 100 of my colleagues and I have been pushing, and it would make it clear that, I mean, I'll just give you one example, because, you know, I know, you know, we don't want to go on forever, but right now in the pharmaceutical industry, you as an incumbent can pay a competitor to keep their generic off the market, even after the patent protection period. It's like, hey, now is a time when generics can come up. I can pay you a big fat check to keep the, the generic off the market. There's no other industry where that would be legal. No. That would be collusion. That would be anti-competitive. It is a pay-for-delay tactic, which is totally inexcusable and and my bill would eliminate that okay right on let's um let's stay on healthcare, but kind of edit it a little on the question how do how does and should medicare fit within the future of our healthcare system for south dakotans well, I mean, Medicare is critically important. I mean, it takes care of health care for uh, retired folks or for, for folks of a certain advanced age. We need to make good on the commitments we've made uh, for people. But, you know, I won't get to retire for Social Security at 65. That was the, you know, when we founded Social Security in the 30s, it was uh, 65. But for guys your age, my age, we it's 67 for us. In 1983, Democrat Tip O'Neill, Republican Ronald Reagan, they cut a deal where over the course of decades, two decades, they were going to slowly inch up the retirement age from 65 to 67. And we need to make good on our commitments for Medicare. Part of doing that, for making good on our commitments to people who are 40 and 30 and 20 and, and in their teens, is saying, hey, gang, you're going to live 20 years longer than your grandparents. Yeah. You may have to work two more years to earn 18 years of retirement. I'm not offended by that. I'm 44. Again, I'm a lot more open to making those sort of actuarial changes to 44-year-olds than I would be to 74-year-olds. Sure. We're not touching them. We shouldn't. Well, we can't. Right. I don't. I don't. Right. I mean, left, right, and different. I just don't right. reasonably think you could put together a plan for that. And then I think even as it gets young, you know, I, I, that whole structure worked to mm -hmm. your 65, 67, 70, whatever it is. Like that, there isn't a millennia on earth that even sure, you know, lives in this window. Well, when Social Security was founded, the life expectancy for an American male was around sixty. So is that really true? getting to 65 was something. It was intended for people who outlived their retirement savings. Sure. And that obviously we're in a different environment now. And you asked about Medicare, but, but these issues are so linked as things that people pay in, into. And, and of course, we spent their money long ago, but we need to make good on their on commitments we've made. Well, and, I, and I'll include myself into this. I don't know if we have, like, part of my complaint to the political discourse in this country is that we have us as citizens just people on the street we are 
way less educated than I think maybe we used to be because it's a headline world, right? I don't know if enough people know the difference between Medicare and Medicaid. I'm not trying to call those people stupid either. I'm just like, we don't, we, you know, it turns into, well, it turns, this question is even largely kind of not loaded, but it designed to not really explain the difference between the two or what they are. It's just, well, we need a campaign answer. What do you think? You know, so that could be on us as well a little. I don't know if that's a question. I'm just rambling. Are we going to talk about spending in the debt at all? We absolutely can. Well, okay, but you don't have a question. Then let me um, just say this: when it comes to Medicare and Social Security, like people think, because listen, we are a trillion dollars upside down. Pre-COVID, thousand dollars, a trillion dollars every year we're spending more than we bring in, and so people want us to balance the budget by cutting the bureaucracy. Hey, listen, I'm on board. Sign me up. But if we made a 20 percent cut to all of the non-defense discretionary that our country does in a year, we would save. 140 billion. Well, we're a thousand billion upside down. So 20% cuts to the Department of Ag and the Department of Interior and the Department of State and the Department of Treasury does not get us there. Well, it's not a pennies make pounds argument. Well, and let's by all means, let's go save the 140 billion, sure. right? I mean, I'm on board to cutting waste, fraud, and abuse, but we have to be honest about the math. Okay. Um, uh, well, here is a debt. Let's stay on debt a little bit with the growing national debt. Like, so where's the, the question is, since you kind of answered already, what should we do to lower the national debt and net? Should that even be the goal? I think that'd be the question I would like, is the goal by year X, let's have it down to nothing. Or is it a manageable, like I'm, I'm a financial dummy. So I'd imagine this is your world every day. Let's say, well, let's I wish it was my world every day. Ticket. Like what's, the, what's the fix? Right. I, um, I do think we need to get the deficit, the amount of money that we overspend every year to zero, because I just think we, we make life too easy for politicians. I mean, one of the reasons that the South Dakota state government is better run than the federal government is that there are no cheap yeses. I mean, I remember during the, the, during the great recession, we had to cut, cut, cut $127 million from the state budget. I was chief of staff at the time, very involved, uh, as a co-architect of those uh, cuts. And so I had students from the University of South Dakota come in, understandably upset about the fact that they were going to be paying a larger portion of their tuition than they were the year before. And I said, hey, listen, I totally get it. We're putting X million dollars more on the backs of students than we did last year. Let's find another place for the cuts. Because you know what? When I have people who have developmental disabilities at community support providers like LifeQuest. Uh, Black Hills Works. Ab absolutely. Their people are making eight, nine, ten, eleven dollars an hour. Yeah, and they can't keep them. And one thing I know about college graduates is that over their careers, they make well in excess of a million dollars more than people who don't graduate from college. So I feel you, and we should invest in education. And half of all of the money that South Dakota spends out of its general fund every year goes to education. It's a great investment. But if I give more to you, I got to take from the prison which it's not like that's fat and happy, right? <laughs> Prison's not a great place to be. You'd rather be in the Richardson right. dorm in Vermilion right. than in, on the hill. I, mean, I grew up East River, but even I'd rather be <laughs> right. in Hanson Hall than yeah, the exactly. Super Penitentiary. Exactly. And so in, in South Dakota, policymakers have to figure out where do you spend the money, and so they end up saying responsible knows a lot. As long as we let our federal government in D.C. spend money that it doesn't have, how in the hell do you say no? Right. It's just always like people come in and they've, everybody's got a study that says if you spend a billion dollars here, you will save $2 billion over the course of the next 10 years. It always sounds good. And I'm reminded of Thatcher. She probably <laughs> said it. Maybe it was Reagan. That there's a limitless number of good things you can do with other people's money. 
we've been in your offices before during an NAB week, and we're, you know, look at all the money we need, blah, blah, blah. Everybody's got the same kind of beggar, not beggar's cup, but you know what I mean? The same statistical, this is, what, this is why it's good, blah, blah, blah. And I get it. The federal government has almost unmatched ability to make investments and, you know, uh, change policy and unlock freedom and, you know, create, uh, help the private sector create prosperity. But way too many of my colleagues are able to say yes with real, really no repercussions because we're, we are comfortable with deficit spending as a country sure. and shame on us. Okay, right on. That's a great answer. Um... Do you feel? Oh, and I would just mention yeah, I put ahead. my I put my you know I put the people's money where my mouth is. I voted against the last two big budget deals because they didn't do enough to address this issue. Let's pivot on that a yeah. little bit. So, like, without wading into a mindstorm at all, and this isn't necessarily a gotcha question, but like, where would you where where should we be improving on COVID, and what do you kind of like about what we're doing on COVID? And I know that's. I mean, none of that. That's just a double up the middle factual. This isn't a yeah, right. Anything else. No, totally get it. Number one, what we're doing really well is this Operation Warp Speed with the vaccine. It's incredible. I mean, our country has invested more on the COVID-19 vaccine than all other countries combined. And in part because of this massive investment, we're going to get a vaccine faster than any vaccine's ever been developed. And so people, I think, rightfully say, well, Dusty, if we're moving so quickly, what gets sacrificed? Sure. And the answer to that question is, Money gets sacrificed. Yeah. A lot of money. A lot of money. No, no public safety, no health. I mean, 90,000 Americans have already been a part of these phase three clinical trials. We're able to analyze. I mean, we are weeks into these trials now. We're able to see some of the, the, the effects and, and, and uh, uh, you know, what, what reactions they're having. Uh, money is being sacrificed. Yeah, but I would say overall, the vaccine is going to be a huge human success story powered by our federal government. What we're not doing well is the testing. We are still not to 3 million tests, and good gracious. I mean, what are we in this, six, seven, eight months? And although we have made some progress here and there, we are still fighting way too much about where to get swabs and where to get reagent. And I mean, it's just, it's, we are not where we need to be. Uh, You know, I would, I think this would be, again, not right or left, but I think the general public's perception from our little red corner of the world is it's a little, it's a plague on both houses. It's quit trying to win. Yeah, I mean, the first four COVID packages passed overwhelmingly in bipartisan fashion. I mean, the CARES Act. Well, I mean that is a little, I, like, I mean that a little back, back to the people, right? Like, I I could write a phone book of what I don't know about how a vaccine trial, <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Is and so, yeah. and so maybe if everybody could understand this is not necessarily, like, this is not an instant breakfast solution. No, I mean, I do, listen, I I get it. I I do think there's a healthy skepticism that we should all have with data. But I would also say, I don't think anybody, you know, decides as a 14-year-old that they are going to go into epidemiology and they're going to survive O-Chem in college and they're going to go become a public health expert and they're going to serve their country for 30 years as an epidemiologist, (laughs) all as part of some grand multi-decade plan to dupe humanity. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's always these things dupe humanity, right? Like, I, I swear, and like, I, you're actual famous, right? And I'm like, <laughs> local market, <laughs> yeah, regional right, magician yeah. famous. Yeah, right. And I can't go to lunch without two or three people like, hey, I heard you were at whatever. Yeah. 
so conspiracy theories can you know what I mean like come, oh we love them we love the conspiracy theories and again I'm not saying everybody just go to sleep and let me pat you on the head and you just listen to what your government tells sure. you right I'm not that guy healthy skepticism I would say though we need to acknowledge that consensus is not unanimity and there are some things about this pandemic that are broadly held scientific consensus and um, you know the fact that we need more testing and the fact that the vaccine development is going well, those are broadly held. Yeah. It's um, Allender here, our mayor, kind of said it best a long time ago. This isn't a Republican virus. This isn't a Democratic virus. This is, we'll do this together. Like, remember the good old days when things would happen and we would all kind of band together? <laughs> right, you know what I mean? Right. Like, oh my, I can't believe we're in a situation where we were kind of like, the greatest thing about 9-11 was 9-12 when everybody was in it to win it. We got this. I know we all yeah. think we're all the worst in some things, but like, let's do it. Well, we can't remember it now because everything's gotten so partisan, but we were there March, April, May. I mean, the CARES Act, which was a massive investment. Yeah. I mean, it was three times what our country spends on non-defense discretionary spending in a year. That passed 97 to zero in the Senate. I mean, Ted Cruz and Bernie Sanders didn't sing Kumbaya as they voted, <laughs> but you could see that rendition from here. I'd pay all the money all in the world. The, all the monies. To, Take all the monies. Get them in right. a room and put a guitar in there. Right. Come on, guys. But, I mean, 97 to zero. And so uh, this, was a, this was an event that brought us together for quite a number of months, and we've obviously drifted apart since then. Well, and the partisanship has changed so much too. I, like I, this could be from a movie. I don't know if it's political. This could be entertainment or actual history. I don't remember the line, <laughs> but it's it's someone in the presidential administration talking to another person in the presidential administration. They were complaining that the other side, the other political party, was the enemy. And the chief of staff goes, "No, no, no. The Senate's the enemy." Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. Like that's how that whole thing was a little bit. Yeah, Lyndon Johnson said that. It, okay, right. Yeah, that's See? legit. Okay. That's actual history. That was not written by Aaron oh, Sorkin. God, that that's actually some <laughs> television show. I just didn't. Yeah, Aaron Sorkin is yeah. probably where I would have got it from too. Uh, okay, let's go back on here. Um, do you? I I think this is a layup, but this is a good one, and and it's something I want to ask the other side too. Do you feel the national government is friendly to small businesses in South Dakota? Or does the national government kind of put small businesses into too many situations of undue stress? Well, I would say we're living in an increasingly globalized world, and I think that treats small businesses unfairly. Yes. And we all individually as consumers have something we got to own up to on that. I mean, listen, I love Thune's Hardware. It's eight blocks from my house. It's a small locally owned hardware store in Mitchell, and I go there all the time. When I uh, venture into Menards in Mitchell – it's way busier. Yeah. It's way busier. And so I don't know, people. Like, I mean, we say that we love small businesses and local businesses, but why are we constantly uh, going to Denver and Minneapolis to spend our money? Why are we constantly free? Why are we buying stuff from Amazon? Why are we going to big national chain restaurants? I mean, the overwhelmingly we are choosing Walmart rather than the locally owned yeah. mom and pop when we have when we're making a decision voting with our dollars 
And so, yeah, the, the world is not being kind of small business. I would tell you, I think our federal government has been pretty kind of small businesses. You look at something like the Paycheck Protection Program. Sure. You know, in South Dakota, 22,000 small businesses access those dollars. Every once in a while, you try to have somebody make the argument that, oh, you know, the PPP dollars went to all these big boys. Well, bully. I mean, listen, yeah, if you're going to make millions upon millions of loans, you're going to have some stinkers. Don't get me wrong. 100%. But, but anybody who would make that argument is just too, I mean, I, not to be blunt, they're too stupid to hold that. That's just not, it's not, you don't know what you're talking about. No, I think. Binary statements. Exactly. Out of dozens of millions of loans made nationwide in the PPP, I think there were 146 that were made to publicly traded companies or companies with more than 500 employees. So I don't know. We've got waste, fraud, and abuse in the social security system too, but I'm not looking to get rid of it. Well, there's all, you know, there's, it's the one bad apple theory. No, sure. exists always. I mean, the average loan out of the 22,000 South Dakota businesses that got it was $74,000. I mean, this is not a, you know, this helped mom and pop businesses. And so why did we have so many layoffs then? I mean, I had, on a radio interview, I had somebody ask me that. And I said, well, part of the reason we had so many layoffs is we didn't help the big boys. Like the 30 million people were unemployed, were laid off in this country, were overwhelmingly employed by large businesses that did not have access to the same cash and the same liquidity through the CARES Act. And I'm not saying that they should have been. I'm just saying small businesses have access to capital during COVID that the large businesses were absolutely denied access to. I think that's a uh, that's a great point about the, the globalization having more effect. I, I I don't think this can be your statement in a campaign year, but I would add back going to support small business. I do largely think it's a thing that you just say on social media, then then you feel good about yourself and you don't actually have to do it, right? My argument back to the businesses is, yes, we need to support small businesses, but businesses that were doing business the way they did in the 80s need to also evolve. Mm-hmm. Like they, it's a meat in the middle more than it is, be, you know, you're not, no one's going to out Amazon, Amazon. So you, you so let's 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 admit the internet exists at least. You know what I mean? Like there are ways to, like twenty twenty to me, not taking aside all like the awful like there's deaths and sickness and like, I'm not trying to minimize any of that. But yeah, twenty twenty is gross. Yeah, twenty twenty is. I mean, if it wasn't for the Mandalorian, honestly. <laughs> but at the same time, I think, in, especially certainly in businesses like ours, it's amplifying changes we should have been working on for decades, maybe. And, and that's a real conversation that just no one wants to have. I mean, it's clearly amplifying the pace of change. Things like telemedicine that had been so much slower to sure. get started up have been yep. amped up. Some work at home stuff is going to go a lot faster than we would have thought. I mean, but, you know, I have a hard time finding much hope in that silver lining. I mean, the, the manure sandwich, which is COVID, is a lot bigger than the cinnamon and sugar we sprinkled on top. Oh, yeah. And a lot, like, we're all, you know, we just said it. I can't wait for this year to get over. But it's not like on January 1st, all of this is made up. And oh, no. Listen. It's a long-term race here. I don't want to bum everybody out because the January weather is going to suck. <laughs> but 2021 is not getting better. <laughs> Well, we used to have a little more fortitude and patience for this stuff, and I just don't know if we'd have that same level, you know. Um, Okay, let's go to – okay, so for years and years in in campaigns, certainly, and and I do think in the governing end of it, we've been – um, the claim has been we're trying to be energy independent for years. So what should we, what what actually on a South Dakota level? What what should we be doing? What should we not be doing? Where what's um, I guess the another way to ask that would be what what's the renewable energy path mixed with what's the you know traditional 
I don't think that's the proper word for it, but like the current energy world needs to evolve as well. Like what's that look like in the next few years? Well, I mean, I think there's been a lot more progress made on this front than most people really give, I think, our country or this state credit for. Sure. I mean, the reality is in the last few years, our country, you know, a lot of people want to talk about carbon. Well, we've reduced our carbon footprint in the last few years as a country by more than the next nine countries combined. And so there's been a lot done. And frankly, in South Dakota, when I, you know, when I started with, with state government 20 years ago, uh, we had zero commercially, uh, commercially sized wind farms. By the time I left the PUC, just eight years later, we, the report came out and said that our state got a larger proportion of our electricity from renewable sources than any other state in the country. And that was a pretty quick transition over the course of eight years. Yeah, and and that's not to say that we need to be done growing or making investments, but we got to do it at a pace and in a way that doesn't injure ratepayers. And frankly, I think acknowledges that some of these things are bridge technologies. I mean, we do not want to shut off all the natural gas turbines overnight. I mean, these things are workhorses. That I mean, we want the lights to be on. Frankly, we want the respirators at the hospital to be running, even if the wind's not blowing. Sure. Did you want to? Oh, we got five minutes left? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Let's get to it. I appreciate that. Um, we God, we were just blabbing so much in the beginning. Let's see. Okay, let's do a hit list here. Um, Social Security. What assurances do you feel like given or not given? Yeah, I mean, I think for people who are receiving or are close to receiving Social Security, we got to make good on the commitments we've made. But if you're younger, I think you've got to be willing to have a serious conversation about how do we change the math. I mean, Social Security and Medicare, uh, one of them goes uh, insolvent uh, in the next uh, four or five years. The other goes insolvent in the next six or seven. Like, unacceptable, gang. we got to be willing to talk about uh, changing the math. All right. Um, let's do. Would you? This is this is not a five minute left question. I get that, but like, can you ever see any changes in our tax structure here in South Dakota? We should look at. Oh, I I actually think the South Dakota tax structure it's certainly not perfect. I mean, there's no perfect tax structure because people hate paying taxes. Sure. But you know, I think in general uh, you want to be careful about uh, what you tax. I mean, generally when you tax something, you get less of it. Um, and, and frankly, I think uh, our consumption tax is a better fit than a lot of states that rely a lot on income taxes. Mm -hmm. You know, our property taxes clearly at different times in the last 30 or 40 years, 30 or 40 years have been higher than we want them to be. There've been a couple of big changes we've made to try to adjust that. And I think they're certainly better now than they were before relative to other states. So we've got some improvements to make, but, but, you know, we're still always rated as one of the top five lowest tax states in the country, and, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Uh, okay, let's do... This is a good one. Should we increase or decrease our military spending? Well, right now we spend more on military spending than the next six or seven countries combined, I think. And I want to make sure that we're always in a position where we can um, universally acknowledge that we have the most powerful military in the world. Let's keep the big stick. And that we, and, and that we would be able to uh, basically fight to, uh, into pretty drastic theaters of war. I mean, the reality is we have Russia and China, which 
uh, are not our friends. They're adversaries. We certainly should not be looking for any kind of hot war with them. We should not be antagonists. We should not be belligerent. But we also don't want to seem weak. I think we want to say that we would be able to respond to any kind of a threat with those countries from a position of strength and not weakness. That's going to take a ton of money. Do I think uh, there's an opportunity uh, to make our existing military spending more efficient? Of course there is. Sure. No different than maybe, I mean, not to answer for you, but there's that's you could make that argument for about any department. Well, I mean, there's no other department that, you know, that, that, that spends, you know, $700 billion uh, of our money in quite the way that the military does. Sure. And, and I think there is, uh, I think we always want to be, uh, we always want to be effective, but uh, we all want to be efficient too. Let's do one more. Are we doing enough to secure borders? Um, what you know? What sh- what should we do with current illegals? Let's just do a general immigrant kind of section to wrap up here. Yeah, I mean, to me, man, there are like three or four buckets, and I view each of those buckets separately. People have a tendency to pull them all together, and to me, you got to break them out. I mean, legal. Well, and this is a hard topic for a last question too. No, so no, I this is great. This okay. is awesome. Listen, they're all good. They're all good. I mean, I love questions. <laughs> I love my answers even more. <laughs> but politician, I, I always try to start by saying what I think almost all Americans acknowledge, which is legal immigration, when done properly, is an unbelievable blessing to this nation. And it has watered this country with a new dynamic generation of ass kickers, generation after generation after generation. And it has kept us hungry. It has kept us at the forefront of world leadership for a lot longer than most countries get to be at the forefront of leadership. And what we know is after 10 years in this country, legal immigrants are uh, are living the American dream to a greater extent than native-born Americans on almost any data point you want to look at. Higher rates of home ownership, lower rates of obesity, education. higher rates of marriage, higher rates of educational attainment, lower rates of divorce. I mean, High they are just, they are living the American dream even better than native-born Americans are. And so, man, do I love legal immigration. Uh, I love it. Uh, you know, Ill- illegal immigration clearly imposes some pretty serious costs. And I do think a physical barrier is a part of that answer. I think, uh, you know, things like E-Verify on the employment side are a part of the answer. I think making sure that we've got a social safety net policies that don't reward bad behavior is a part of the answer. And then the third bucket I would talk about is guest workers. And I think people have a tendency to either plump, you know, plop that in a uh, bucket one or bucket two. It's not legal immigration or illegal immigration. These are relatively short-term stays with people who come here to aid the American economy. I mean, I'll speak as our tourism industry out here. Yes. We, we need them. Yes. I, don't, I mean, I, anybody can sit here and argue with me, but we need them. We don't have these programs to aid the foreign workers. We have these programs to aid American business. Yes. And what we know is if we do these guest worker programs properly, I mean, number one, it's a requirement that they can't take job from an American. Before you can go out and access these programs, you have to advertise for these jobs for months to native-born yes. Americans. And, of course, I think that's an important requirement. But these are— And our it's starting to interrupt. Our restrictions on that are way worse than other countries. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. I know. They can mm-hmm. put one little newspaper classified out, and it's kind of— good. Yeah. You really got to do it here. What we know is that guest worker programs when properly designed and executed create millions over decades of jobs for Americans. Yeah. I mean, just think about how many Americans are employed by our agriculture industry in this state or our visitor industry. And if those two had to contract by 30%, we would be talking about thousands of fewer good paying jobs in the state. So I view all three of those buckets differently. To me, 
I don't have any problem having aggressive leadership in all three, but let's let's tackle them with a little bit of differentiation and nuance. Maybe some less binary of it all. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is not like people from you know Paraguay are evil, you know, and and people from you know Texas are are awesome. There's some real stinkers <laughs> from Texas. Okay, I got. I want to sneak in one more. I'm sorry, I'll be done. You feel like weighing in on the issue ads in the state of what you think on either A26 and then the sports betting on B. Oh, um, so I guess the A and twenty six would be recreational and medical cannabis, and then and then sports betting would be Amendment B. Yeah, I mean, I generally try not to weigh on these things too heavily because I just kind of feel like th- that's why we have direct democracy. The voters get to say, but I don't want to dodge a question. So, I mean, I'll say, I mean, I think you know, clearly gambling is gambling addiction is a massive problem in it our is. state. It, it's massive. But people who already are sick have countless outlets to do sports betting. So for me, this is a question about, you know, is there an opportunity for the state to actually maybe do a better job with things like behavioral health because we have these resources? So I'm really open to the idea uh, that sports betting, that there's a path forward toward doing it right in the state. And then with regard to marijuana, I mean, I'm just an old fuddy-duddy. I mean, I just think I've got lots of friends who've been on marijuana. I'm not saying it made them violent. I'm not saying that it ruined their lives. I'm saying that almost without exception, the years that my friends were using were less productive years in their life. And frankly, they didn't really get their crap together until they quit using. And that's almost a universal experience with all my buddies, my close buddies who use. Sure. And I think South Dakota, I just don't think we need more drug use. And I get it. Marijuana is not heroin. It's not Coke. I don't want to try to scare kids straight. <laughs> I mean... I'm really not, I mean, but the reality is I just, I don't think we need more drug use in this state to make South Dakota stronger. Um, Yeah, I'll take that answer. And if you want to come back and debate it, we'll debate it. Great. Very good. Well, I think people are going to largely decide this too. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And they and people really don't care what I think on this stuff. Oh, I care what you think on this. Oh, uh, no, I'm blushing. I'm blushing. No, and like, <laughs> and, and I, you know, um, okay. Well, we'll that, we, you guys got to get going anyway. Okay, Mr. Dusty Johnson, um, he is one of your candidates. I will say this: I like that picture you posted with your opposition last week. Oh, it's fun. Kind of fun to get together. Yeah, I think I think there's more of that that is needed. Um, I appreciate you running a real civil mm-hmm. campaign, and and uh, you're one of the good ones about that. So I appreciate it. Well, so. Is Randy. So is my so is my opponent. We're gonna keep being decent human beings who disagree on major policy issues. And you know what? That's okay. That is okay. And we'll have mm-hmm. Randy on for this next. I believe that's gonna be uh I believe we're recording that next week, and you guys can listen to both and then you can make your decisions, and that's your uh, duty and role. And so please make sure you go vote. And then thank you for listening to the Dakota uh, Dakota Town Hall podcast, sponsored by Home Slice Media and Elevate Rapid City. Thanks, man. Thanks, Murdoch. <laughs>